indeed, O oh God, by grace we have come to see this Savior as high and lifted up. We are a people who gather together to celebrate. Hallelujah, what a Savior you provided. One that was perfectly suited to meet the needs of your people. The one who spilled his blood so that we might not have to be separated from God in a place called hell forever. That through his great grace, we are a people who have found forgiveness. We have been transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And we stand here this morning as people on our way to heaven. Father, uh, remind us that one of our eyes need be always cut at that future home that you have prepared for your people. Father, for the kind providences of the past week, we thank you. Some of us come in here today with a, um, with a heart that's full because you put us in a broad place. Others of us, we come with hearts that are not uh, so buoyant. There have been uh, events in our marriages and our families and our jobs and our health that have reminded us that indeed um, we are not in control, that we are not um, independent, but we are a people who is, are so dependent upon the God of all mercy and grace. And to you we look, O oh God. We look for intervention. We look for answers, for wisdom. To you, O oh God, we look for mercy and grace as we seek to, to handle aright that which you've placed before us. Father, might we all leave here today with a greater sense of uh, your direction, your presence. We want to know you, O oh God, and we want to respond rightly from that uh, to that which you have allowed to be in our lives. Father, might the, the men who are married here be reminded of our roles of lovers and leaders in our homes, and might our women also be reminded, O oh God, for, the, for their role in marriage. And I pray that you might allow us to, to, to play those roles in the way that you designed them to be played. Father, might the worship please you. Uh, we come to a point in it where we are allowed to express tangibly that, number one, we trust you. And number two, we believe that our financial future is better off in your hands than it is in ours. So accept our gifts, as small as they might be. We, um, we understand that the real issue is not the number of zeros on this check. The real issue is how much is left after we wrote the check. We commit ourselves, Father, to a life of trust. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and uh, open them with me. I, uh, I need to, to warn you that I have two sermons this morning. The, uh, the other one is free of charge. Uh, one is uh, long and boring. The other one is brief and boring. Um, actually, you'll probably like the, uh, the brief one better for lots of reasons. But uh, I, what I'd like, and, and very honestly, what, what I'm about to do, I'm, I, I will probably do 
um, maybe two, three weeks, because we want, we want to make sure that everybody hears this. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Judges. Uh, that's right after Joshua, so you've got uh, the first five books, which is the Pentateuch, and you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So that should help. Um, I'm about to read you a statement, uh, just really one verse, out of chapter 5, um, out of Judges chapter 5. And you will notice, if your Bible is marked somewhat similarly to mine, that uh, this is, chapter 5 is, uh, the Song of Deborah. Now let me tell you a little bit about this, uh, about why she sings this song. Um, Israel had been tormented by the Midianites, and they had just been delivered uh, through a woman, primarily a woman by the name of Deborah. She had an assistant whose name was Barak, and he, um, he was asked to lead Israel, and he said, I'll go only if you'll go with me. And so he goes and leads the armies of Israel against the armies of the Midianites, and uh, Israel is delivered. And on the heels of that great military conquest and that deliverance uh, led by uh, Deborah, she writes and pins this song, this song of, um, of celebration. And uh, I was reading it this week in, in my own devotional life, and I ran across a verse that reminded me of you. Actually, it reminded me of us. Let me read it to you. It's verse 2. When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Now, I, I don't know that you know why that reminded me of you and us. I, I, if you hadn't picked it up yet, let me, let me try to explain. Um, a lot of you have been waiting on what I'm about to say. It is a, it is a joy uh, to stand up here in front of you this morning and say what I'm about to say. Uh, we are about to begin. We are about to begin. Um, in fact, we have already begun the process for the construction of a new worship center. But let me tell you, uh, I'm, I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But, gang, this struck me as the pastor of this church. When leaders lead... And when people willingly offer themselves, who is to be applauded? Oh, the leaders did a good job. Oh, the elders and the staff, oh, they did a really good job. They led us rightly. No, 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 maybe, maybe we should say the people. The people, they gave willingly. They committed themselves willingly. But my point is, ladies and gentlemen, in this particular instance uh, where Deborah writes, she saw that in situations where leaders are doing their job, leading, and where people are offering themselves willingly, it's a cause of celebration because God has moved in both leader and people to make something happen. And so he, they pause to celebrate and bless the Lord. Gang, because of the generosity of people like you, we are ready to begin. In fact, we have already begun. 
that is, in terms of the Look campaign and the, the proposed building of a sanctuary, we are underway. We had a, a session meeting last Sunday night, and perhaps you've wondered, why has there been this silence between the 21st of May and today? Well, let me try to explain that first. Gang, your church is run by a consensus, a plurality of eldership. That is, it is not a benevolent dictatorship here. It is run by a group of elders. And the elders met on, we were all traveling. You know, the Brazil trip was planned long before anything else. And we, and we finally got back together. I, I, uh, Jerry Brasher and I got back in town on a Saturday, or I got back on a Saturday, and we met on a Sunday. In fact, we even uh, asked Bob Wood and Wayne Mashburn to meet with us. They are men who are rotated off the session at this moment. But they were a part of the decision when it was first made back in January. And so uh, we wanted you to know that we are so eager to have as much counsel as we can get. Because as you know, the Bible says where there's plenty of counsel, there's much wisdom. So as of last Sunday night, the elders of your church have decided that because of the general hour, through the generosity of, of people like you, we are in a position to begin. Now, you're going to see a lull. That is, there's going, to be a, there's going to be nothing you're going to see out there for a while. Let me tell you why. First of all, a complete set of plans have to be drawn. Secondly, those plans have to be put out to competitive bidding. Then the whole zoning process and approval from the city of Kyerville has to, to take place. And then we have to secure a construction loan. Once that is done, we will be digging. Uh, we are on our way, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, I, I have authorization to say to you, we are on a fast track. We are expediting, but we can't do anything. You won't see any holes dug until probably, in fact, ladies and gentlemen, if we had uh, all of the five, six million in cash in my grubby little palm this morning, you still wouldn't see any concrete poured probably before uh, October the 1st because of those things that I, those four things that I just mentioned. But as soon as those things are done, if, uh, if they are completed earlier, we will begin earlier because we have examined this decision, we have analyzed um, uh, from several different directions the, the data that you have provided for us in your pledges. And um, we feel like we are in a very good position to begin. We're aiming um, at a groundbreaking somewhere around the second Sunday in September. Now, um, I, I can't promise that just yet, but that's what we're thinking right now. If, if, if everything goes uh, governmentally and uh, the way we hope it will, uh, in terms of zoning and all, we, 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 can, be, we can break ground in uh, the, second of, the second Sunday in September. But it may be a little bit later than that. But you may see some activity out here in some parking lots. But ladies and gentlemen, we're underway. We're underway um, because when the leaders lead in Israel and the people willingly commit themselves, bless the Lord. Um, may I say also, if you have been wondering as to when to start your giving, uh, yesterday would have would be good. Um, we're we are. I, I want to say this one other thing too. Um, a couple of things. We have a look committee that has been advising us all the way through. If you are a part of the look committee, would you please stand? 
Anybody in the service? There's one, there's two, there's three and four, five, <laughs> six, uh, seven. So just these people, and there's be some others in the next service, thank you, have been advising us all the way through. The pledges have been made, and they got together last Wednesday. And um, uh, Jack uh, is, is the chairman of this committee, uh, Jack DeWald, and, um, uh, and the committee looked at him and said, we don't want to disband. We want to continue to meet because there may be things that we need to do in the coming months. I, I just thought that was so neat that this committee it, um, has done their work pretty much, but feel like they need to stay together and for the continuing oversight. I just think that's thrilling on, on their part. I'll tell you one other quick little story. Um, well, I better not. I better make sure I get permission before I tell you this story. But guys, yesterday, no, actually one was Friday. Friday and, and Saturday, I was told three stories about what God is doing in your midst, in, in individual lives. And I'm telling you, I'm dying to tell you these stories. But I, I better ask their permission before I do that. So um, um, one of the things that we feel as the elders of the church is that God has endorsed the direction that we thought he was leading us. And he's done that in a very tangible and concrete way through your responses. You did good, ladies and gentlemen. But we, and I know you as well as I, I was in a meeting all week in Tampa, Florida, and people were asking me about this. And I, I came home and I told Susie one, one night, I said, you know, I like to tell the story, but I feel like, I feel like I, um, the focus is on us when in fact I think the focus should be on the Lord God. And I think you agree. Um, but keeping that in mind, you did good, guys, and we are on our way. So um, you should be seeing things in the, as soon as we can get permissions and plans and bids and all that process, you should be seeing things take place. Guys, when the leaders lead in Israel and when the people willingly offer themselves, it's an occasion. It's an occasion for celebration. It's an occasion to bless and praise the Lord. One, one other thing that I... As the elders, we felt that it was very interesting that God has provided just enough. He didn't provide 10 million, he provided enough. So in the unfolding of this program, all along the way, we will be walking in faith and trusting God. That, that has been a, a great common thrill on the part of the elders of the church. So there's the announcement, ladies and gentlemen, an announcement I hope you've been waiting for. Uh, there it is. If you've got any questions, I'll probably do this again next week just to make sure that everybody in the congregation hears it. So kind of bear with us. But we're off, and uh, because of you and because of God's blessing in our midst, we will be uh, doing things right away as soon as we can. I hope, I hope I made that clear. All right, that was sermon number one. That um, uh, I, I hope you uh, didn't get bored over that one because the next one's far worse. Um, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 11. Um, folks, if you've got any questions about what I just announced, those seven people that stood up, um, Brent Wilkins, uh, don't hesitate to let us know. We uh, Come see us. We'll try to answer further questions that you may have. Psalm 11. I'm gonna, only going to read one verse out of Psalm 11. 
It's one I, um, I think of often, particularly in the, in the situation that we find ourselves in as a culture. Verse 3, it states, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? <laughs> the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, oh, it endures forever. I need to remind you uh, of where we are. Uh, it was back on June the 4th, and I told you what I was up to this summer. I'm doing something that is um, called What's Important Around Here. It has to do with our core values. Do you remember those? Perhaps you've got one of these stuck in your Bible someplace. Uh, and I said, what I wanted to do over the summer is just go over uh, the core values, the things that are important at Gracie Van. Um, there are six items, and number one at the top of the list is truth, if you uh, can recall. And then on the first sermon, which was June the 4th, and then we were, I was in Brazil on the 11th, and the 18th was Father's Day, so we're, we're returning to that theme. Um, but on the 4th, I told you there were five reasons that truth is so important to us. Number one, that it was central to the accomplishment of the Great Commission, that it was critical in the work of sanctification, that it is the basis of all leadership and counsel, that it is the grand liberator, the truth shall set you free, and then fifthly, it is the thing that sustains us in periods of suffering. Now guys, I, I hope through those, that, that one sermon, or through those five points, that you know deep down, deep down in your souls, that our love of truth around here is not spawned by some desire to create a church uh, of intellectual elitism. We're not trying to create heady Christians. But um, I, I could even go so far as to make a case that uh, the, um, the, the thing that most expresses my love for Jesus Christ is my feeding you, because that's what Jesus said to John, or to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. My point is, I, we're not trying to create a bunch of uh, highbrows. But we're convinced that for those five reasons, and that Jesus has commanded us as lovers of the people of God to feed them. That's why truth is so important. I read this week that there are only two things that can get inside the heart of a man. Truth and beauty. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we feel like the way to get inside your heart is through the truth of God. But to those other five reasons that I just mentioned, I want to add one more this morning. Uh, one more reason why we're convinced or why we're convinced that truth must be such a core value among us at grace. Look at the text again. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, of course, I, I hope you see that what I'm suggesting is that the foundations that David has in mind is a foundation built on truth. I don't know what else you build a life on truth, or perhaps your perception of truth, but truth has uh, got to be the foundation. And when that gets destroyed, what do we do? What is there for us to do? You know, Camus, a, a, um, a, philosopher, a philosopher who was quite a skeptic, said that truth is a colossal bore. <laughs> 
Well, David seems to suggest that if you don't have it, if your life is not built on it, chaos is often the result. And in our day, things that were once fixed and stable and settled and in place uh, are, um, have been thrown into, uh, into confusion. Issues like um, family. How do you define family anymore? Or um, gender issues. How about sexual orientation? Um, why did those things get cut loose from, from settled, firm convictions that were underneath us heretofore? Well, I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, it's because the foundations, if they're not already destroyed, are being destroyed. Because, ladies and gentlemen, absolute truth has been replaced. It's been replaced with a whole other view of truth, and I think you know what it's called. It's called relativism. And, and I hope I don't insult anyone's intelligence in here, but if you don't know what that is, let me just give you kind of some simple uh, summaries of what relativism is. For in, in the relativist scheme of things, truth has come to mean what is true for me. That is, there are no objective standards for anything anymore. Relativism makes truth person-dependent. What's true for me may not be true for you. One man said it like this. He said, one man's art is another man's pornography. Relativism, guys, is a, is a, is a belief that, that truth and error and right and wrong and normal and abnormal and beautiful and ugly are all to be determined by the individual. And what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that relativism is destroying, if it hasn't already destroyed, the foundations underneath us. You know, one of the, the more caustic sobriquets that, are, that is aimed at Christians these days is the term absolutist. <laughs> I hope that didn't embarrass you, or it's something that you think you need to apologize for. The culture is pretty angry at us for refusing to accept one of their favorite doctrines, uh, that is relativism. And the relativist loves his view of truth because the commands of Scripture are so inconveniently clear. He doesn't like what this says, so he has replaced it with a whole other view of truth. And you know, gang, one of my concerns is that the evangelical church is beginning to buy into that. We're getting brainwashed and, and becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. Now, now you tell me, um, what, what has the exchange of absolutes for relativism brought about in our culture? Have you seen a rise in the quality of life? Nonsense. And, and I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that relativism is a major player in, in America's social decline. It's, it, it is relativism that has authored a suicide of this culture. It is, it is the disease that is destroying us. I tell you what, ask yourself this. What if the trajectory of the past half century continues 
unaltered for another half century. That is, if the 90s were unimaginable for people of the 50s, imagine what a, another few decades will bring to our culture. Just pick your statistic, any of them. Just whatever you like. If the direction of this culture does not change, if violence, drug abuse, sexual perversion, that's just three indicators, you can just pick another one. If, if they follow the same trend line established in the past 30 years, what do you think this country is going to look like in 2030? I read one man who said, we are returning to the dark ages. I think that was Chuck Colson. Now, gang, according to this text, and I think other places in the Bible, when truth dies, so does morality. When truth dies, all, so do all of its subspecies, like ethics. Do you find it harder, businessman, to do business today than you used to? Do you find it harder to trust contracts? You know what? I would even say to you, if you are a businessman and God is blessing your business, I got a piece of advice for you. The thing that you ought to be investing in today, I'm saying if you're sitting here as a pagan, someone who does not in, uh, embrace Jesus Christ, who does not understand the gospel and gives two hoots and a holler for it, I say to you, if you are succeeding in your business, one of the things that you ought to invest in is world evangelization. Because, ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to be able to do business if the culture continues to erode. What we're finding is Americans are buying more locks, more fences, more security systems, more guns. You know, our, our culture says that she firmly believes that truth and morality are relative while simultaneously decrying the absence of virtue and ethics and the rise of incivility. You know, ladies and gentlemen, our culture has the equivalent of a multiple personality disorder. She wants, she says she's one thing when in fact issue after issue after issue proves that she's not in tune with who she is. I have a quote which is probably one of my favorite quotes and I've, I've used it here before. It's a C.S. Lewis quote. And it's, of all the C.S. Lewis quotes, this is one of my favorite. He says, we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. Did you get that? Let me finish it because he goes on to say, we castrate and bid the gelding to be fruitful. Do you understand what Lewis is saying? We laugh at honor, and then we're so surprised that we have traitors in our midst. We laugh at absolutes, and then we wonder why there's such a sexual perversion going on in, in internet pornography. Oh, where did that ever come from? I'll tell you where it came from, ladies and gentlemen. The foundations are being destroyed after underneath us. You know, there's another problem with uh, relativism. And I, I admit to you that it is the majority opinion. It is a widely held theory. But very honestly, it's completely disregarded in practice. That is, 
very, I don't know that in an instance where you find a, a, a relativist practicing it. For instance, if you were to apply relativism to the real issues that face us in our culture today, say uh, racism or abortion or child pornography or uh, gay rights or uh, capital punishment, if you were to apply the real, if you were to uh, respond like a genuine relativist, how many of you would uh, conclude that my views of gay rights are just as true as yours? Why is it that the culture can stand everything but the absolutist? I'll tell you why, ladies and gentlemen. Because the foundations, the foundations are eroding underneath us. It's so interesting to me that when relativism works against them, how quickly they become rel uh, absolutist. I I'll even say this, and I think I've said this before. Under the rules of relativism, the Nuremberg trials for Nazi war crimes should have never taken place. That's perfectly consistent, ladies and gentlemen. Under a relativistic approach to truth. Gang, I hope this hadn't all been too boring to you this morning. I, um, but what I'm trying to do this morning is tell you why truth is such a core value at your church. We think it's foundational. Not, not the roof, not the sidewalls, but foundational. And if further erosion occurs, what can the righteous do? The answer is implied. Nothing. That's what we're going to be doing. It's interesting to me also to note that the text says, not what can the righteous think, but what can the righteous do? Because, ladies and gentlemen, truth underneath this is to be the foundation of action. Not just thinking, not just musings. Truth is intensely practical, but once it is gone, what are we going to do? What we're seeing in the evangelical world, I'm afraid, as truth collapses under the weight of numerous assaults all around us, is that a vacuum has been created. And flowing into that vacuum is self and, and the theology of self and, and therapy. Can I make a commitment to you? By God's grace. That will never happen among us. Because truth is a core value. You know, in, in every other field of human thought and activity, accuracy is considered a virtue. To err ever so slightly is to invite serious loss, if not death itself. It's only in the religious world of thought where faithfulness is looked upon as a fault or faithfulness to truth. 
You know, when men deal with things that are earthly and temporal, they demand truth. But when they come to consider things that are heavenly and eternal, they, they pause and, and, and hedge as if truth could, could not be discovered or that it didn't matter anyway. Can I make another commitment to you? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, that will never happen here, if God will allow. You know, I've, I've wanted to say this to you a number of times. Because, do um, you remember? <laughs> I hope you remember some of it, but some of it I hope you've forgotten. Um, do you remember the series that I did on adultery? Was that last summer or the summer before that? I think it was the summer before that. I did like nine sermons on adultery. And I, I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I got pretty carried away. In fact, I don't know that I've ever been that carried away behind a pulpit. And um, I think somebody came up to me and said, ooh, you got carried away. And I thought, ooh, I'm so ooh, I'm embarrassed that I got so carried. And then upon reflection, a couple of days later, I, I thought, if I cannot get carried away about a man taking another woman's wife, What can I get carried away about? Ladies and gentlemen, if you do not hear the truth at your church, who do you think is going to tell it to you? I would provide this one warning because I, as I prepared this, I thought, okay, the last thing I want to produce, I mean, I want to produce lovers of truth, yes. But let me put it like this. You don't have to be a very godly man to learn theology. Judas Iscariot could have earned a Master's of Divinity from my seminary. It doesn't take a great deal of sanctity to learn Hebrew and Greek. Here's my point. Without the Holy Spirit's illumination and application of the truth to our souls, all we have is dead orthodoxy. And we don't want that either. We don't want just truth, but truth that is pulsating with the life of the Holy Spirit in us. But given his attendance of the truth in our souls, ladies and gentlemen, nothing could be more foundational to the construction of your soul in the truth. And when it's gone, what are we going to do? I want to tell you a story that was sent to me by Tony Norcross a couple of years ago. It's a story about a, uh, a 19th century circuit-riding Methodist preacher his name was Peter Cartwright. I, I don't know Reverend Cartwright, but he had a reputation of being a, a hard preacher and an uncompromising man. And on one particular Sunday morning, as he was about to uh, head into the pulpit, he was told that President Andrew Jackson was in this congregation. And he was warned not to say anything out of line, anything that might be controversial and upset the president. So Cartwright went into the pulpit, and uh, immediately when he began to preach, he said this. I understand that Andrew Jackson is here. 
I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. <laughs> and the congregation was just, oh no. And they all started looking at you know, President Jackson and, 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 and Jackson didn't flinch. So after the service, President Jackson sought out Peter Cartwright. And um, he extended his hand to shake his hand and he said to this minister, he said, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it's never a compromise to tell the truth. Your audience may change. But the truth is the thing that must be the foundation underneath us. I can say this to you, my dear brother and sister. Truth is a glorious but a hard mistress. She demands much of us. And as for me, I decided long ago that I would rather know the truth than be happy in ignorance. And by God's grace, ladies and gentlemen, we as a congregation, we as a staff are committing week after week after week after week to shore up underneath us all a foundation built of truth. Our Father, it is our desire to honor you in that way. It is our desire to have the Holy Spirit to take the truth and apply it to our hearts in such a way that we become new men and women. We do not want stale, dead orthodoxy. We do not want intellectual elitism. What we want, oh God, is the truth being so important to us that it becomes the guide and, the, and the, the rule of faith and practice in our lives. The guide by which we might all become more what you would have us to be. Not ever in an effort to earn your favor, but always in an effort to respond to your favor. Father, thank you for saving us in spite of our disobediences. From here on in, we are a people who long to be people of truth. For those, O oh God, that you've led here who have not yet met our Savior, might they understand that what we're talking about this morning is the very remedy for their sin-sick soul. That what we're talking about this morning is the, is the stuff that they must have if life is to ever make any sense. Oh God, bring them to our beautiful Savior. Might they see that truth indeed is not dependent upon the individual, but truth has been given us in a book, a book that tells us Jesus is willing to save willing to save any who will repent and believe and embrace him. So might they find their hope the same place we found ours, in Christ and him crucified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we'd like to close off our service with an invitation to you. It's, um, it's 
two-headed. We, uh, if, if it's...